Bibles and turn with me to Acts the third chapter. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Acts the third chapter. Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with him, with them into the temple, leaping or walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Praise God. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, the spirit of giving. The spirit of giving. This is Christmas time. And we've all been talking about giving. We talked about giving to Christmas for Christ. We talked about giving to, to missions already this month. The ladies have had their banquet in which they gave or exchanged gifts. Kind of have an accumulation of things up here. Uh, this morning our Sunday school got together and, and of course presented to us this beautiful program. And I will say this, Brother Wittenbach, to you and the Sunday school staff, I really thought this was the best program that you had had. It was just well organized. The children seemed to be into it. They all seemed to to know what you were trying to emphasize and put themselves into it. We had uh, <clears throat> some gifts that we gave out to uh our Sunday school leaders this morning, Brother Wittenbach, Brother Hahn, and then, of course, Brother Getz, our Sunday school uh, bus minister. Tonight, some gifts were given out. Uh, there will be other gifts given out here to uh, people uh, that uh, certainly deserve special recognition for their rendered service this year. This will be in another service. Our banquet last Wednesday evening was highly attended. We had a bigger banquet, more food, more visitors than we've ever had. Uh, <clears throat> it was called to my attention, uh, I guess about 10 years ago, that we ought to go to a place like Heritage House or someplace like that and have, a, have our banquet so that the ladies wouldn't have to work. At that time, you know, work for the meals and such, put them all together. That, that's a big sacrifice. 
At that time we talked about it and the ladies wanted to continue to do it the way they've been doing it, stating that they like to put together their best, uh, even though they don't always get to eat of it themselves. And uh, I, I think it's beautiful. I don't know that we can meet at Monona Community Center anymore. And if we don't meet there, I don't have any idea, Sister Carolyn, where we're going. Sister Carolyn always makes the reservation. We have a reserve for next year already, but I don't know that we can, can meet there. Coliseum. <clears throat> he likes a big, long line. But, uh, you know, I want to... I want to to make some suggestions here tonight in this service about giving that I, I want everybody to take it in the spirit in which I give it. Some of you are not able to to give anything of monetary of great monetary value. I think Peter and, and John recognize this. Yet uh, I read a commentary on this one time, and it was stated that John uh, and his brother James were quite well-to-do because they had inherited a fishing business. Peter, however, was a very poor man. Uh, this, is, this is only according to history, extra history outside the Bible. How valid it is, I don't know. For this reason, you notice Peter said, look on us. But when he got to the part of silver and gold, he said, silver and gold have I none. He just spoke for himself. He didn't say we, but he said I. That's all I, I don't have any money. That's it. Uh, <clears throat> there are times in which people are caught in the midst of some financial crises. And they can not give uh, anything of great monetary value. However, the spirit of a Christian is the spirit of giving. We teach you in stewardship that stewardships are not a matter of how much you can get, but rather how much you can give. And I think that's so very important, so very important. Now, I know that there have been times in which I have not been able to give anything to anybody on Christmas. Now, I can very well remember several Christmases in which Sister Grant and I had like a total of 10 to $12. And when we shopped, we always shopped for the biggest toy because bigness always impresses kids. And so we'd give our kids the biggest toy. Now, our kids always had a way of tearing everything up, so it didn't make any difference how strong or how weak it was. <laughs> it wasn't going to last very long. And so we just got the biggest thing we could, you know, to, to let the kids feel that they were involved in Christmas. And I, I suppose tonight... I have so many mixed feelings in my own mind. And, and I think maybe our Christmas program brought that uh, particular attitude to me. Because when I see these kids from nursery class all the way up, you notice how there, there's a definite difference in the classes as you go up. 
the context gets heavier, the ability gets greater. It was so, it's in the nursery class and some of those classes this morning and how that the teachers were having to tell them and they repeat after. And uh, little Peter Sennon just melted, you know. <laughs> Wasn't it something? It was just, really, all of that's just so great. It's just, really, it's, it's just fantastic how they, they do this. And little Scott Fuller was down with the cloud on his head and had his head bowed. and You know, all of that's so precious. It really is so very precious. Then you go the, up to the senior class and you, you see these kids walking here and talking. Got a head full of sense. Know a lot about the scripture. Know a lot about the ways of the Lord. And you know, life is growth, isn't it? It's what it's all about. You see, as long as you live, if you want to be successful, there has to be something in you that tells you that you can do better and that you should grow. And I think that's so very important that, that people, people understand that. Now, the aspect that I want to talk to you uh, about tonight has very little to do with, with anything that deals with the, the monetary. And I, I trust that you realize that when I read the scripture. But, uh, you know, quite often I get bewildered by the number of people who ask me for money. They just call me up, people I've never, I've never seen before. Uh, truthfully, I get, every week I get, oh, I don't know, five, six calls. This past week I only got three calls, people wanting money. But uh, <clears throat> the thing that sometimes I, I get to thinking, you know, that everybody feels that Pastor Grant's made out of money. And a lot of times I, I give more money away than what I keep. Sister Grant and I have been able to manage money quite well. By that I mean we, for the most part, live on cash. Uh, I have a couple of charge cards. I do a lot of traveling. But until I started doing traveling, until I became the superintendent of the state of Wisconsin, I didn't have a charge card because I just didn't need it. Most people cannot handle charge cards. America is a nation in which you can borrow more, more money than you can pay back. And while we've never tried to save a lot of money, uh, we, we have tried to be as generous as possible toward people who have needs. Now, this message may prompt some of you to further pursue an avenue of a handout. But uh, every Christian should try to turn his situation to the point in which he can help rather than get. Now, I get a lot of things given to me. You understand what I'm saying? I, I'm on both ends of this. I'm in a position in which, here at the church, I probably receive more gifts uh, in one year than some of you receive in a lifetime. Uh, 
And, and I understand all of that. I, I understand how good God has been to me. Uh, being that I'm the superintendent of the state, the, the, you know, the state always gives me a, a nice Christmas gift. They give me a birthday gift. They give a, Sister Grant and I an anniversary gift. And we're always receiving cards from people. And then, of course, uh, the church uh, gave me this beautiful birthday gift recently. Uh, I, our anniversary, we always receive something from you people. And then even when special gifts are given, like the, the uh, cabinet that I received, uh, no telling that the people just go in and leave gifts in our office. Today... Uh, the Wittenbachs brought a gift, gave to us, and Sister Sandy Pinkston brought a gift. This past week, we've gotten several cards from individuals. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and all of this, I, I understand, see, I really understand exactly what God uh, is doing for me. Now, I understand all of that. And I want you to know how much I appreciate all of that. But it would be easy for me to say, well, uh, <clears throat> I could take all of the gifts and such that people render uh, and to, to, to me, and, and, and I can lay up all of these treasures and such, and, and after a while I'll be doing pretty good. Well, I believe that stewardship is managing, and I don't think that people ought to be slowful in their business. I also believe in as much as people have been generous to me, I ought to be generous to them. And, and, and so as a result, uh, Sister Grant and I prayed about this. We try, by the help of the Lord, to help everybody that, that calls on us. Now, there are times when people call, and, and I don't have any money. And they want money right then. And, and, and the, the, part, the part that's so hard in dealing with the public, I'm talking about people who are not in the church. If you tell them you don't have money, they don't believe you. Not too long ago, I had a man to get just real mad. I mean, he got mad at me. Just, I mean, real mad, upset. Because I told him I didn't have any money. And he says, why? He says, how do you live without any money? I said, I suppose the same way that you live. I don't, I don't understand what you say. He wanted me to take my wallet out. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what. He wanted to see if I had any money in my wallet. Now, you're talking about somebody that's brave. And this is what he says. You know, the Bible says, and he quotes scripture to me. But wait a minute. I tried to explain. Now those scriptures that you're quoting to me, you're putting yourself on the opposite end. There's nothing in the Bible that tells me that you ought to give to me if I have a need. But there are scriptures that says I ought to give to you if you have a need. So you put yourself on the receiving side. So I put my wallet out and I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here's my wallet. You take yours out. And he started taking out, and he said, what's the gimmick? I said, I'll take everything out of my wallet, and you take everything out of your wallet, and we'll divide. And we'll, we'll split it half and half. I'll take half of what we have. Well, I had nothing. 
If he had as much as a dollar, I'd be a winner. <clears throat> but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He says, no. He says, I said, now wait. Now you, you, you're, you're telling me I have money in here. And you're here asking me for a handout. And yet you won't, we, you will not allow me to pool my money with you and we'll divide it down the middle and split, split it. You won't do that, which leads me to believe you have more money, at least you think you have more than what I have. And yet you're accusing me of not being a Christian. Well, needless to say, he bid me farewell in a hurry and accused me of being a false prophet. <laughs> So, you know, there is a side to all this that brings a lot of heartache. And, and it bothers me. It bothers me, not from the standpoint that I, that I get ripped off a lot, because I know that I do get ripped off a lot. I know that people tell me lies. There's no doubt about it. They, they, they just outright lie to me. But uh, I still feel that, uh, that you're better off being generous. And I have people who call me up and say, well, Brother Grandpa, what about, and they tell me the money they've given away. And listen, if you are moved upon or prompted upon to help people, and all of a sudden you have a need, don't be discouraged. Because I really do believe that, that when you give to somebody, that you are actually supplying your own need before it comes into existence. I believe that. I definitely believe that. Now, as a pastor, sometimes I have to talk to people who, who become recipients always of handouts. They're always looking for a handout. Now, no Christian should be looking for a handout. You should not expect it. You know, God has so many needs of meeting, so many ways of meeting your needs that. When, when you're in a crisis, see, I've always been the type person, I, and, 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 and God's word, I think, uh, validates this. I've always been the type person that I've always felt that somehow I could make it. And there have been people that brought things and given to me, but, but I think you're better off to, to, to keep your mouth shut and let the Lord move upon people. See, it's beautiful when it's beautiful when God moves upon people. Now, if you are experiencing financial difficulties, I like for you to come and express that to me. Because I do have brothers and sisters who come by and say, "You know, the Lord's really blessed us. We'd like to help somebody. Do you have any direction you'd like to give us?" And could I further say I really do appreciate generous people who will come by and, and, and express that type of love. Now, I have uh, been privileged recently to sit down with some people, and, and we're going to talk about giving a little bit, and then we're going to get monetary giving, and we'll get into another area of this. I, I don't know if I want to preach tonight, really, but I want to do a lot of ministering, a lot of talking. Uh, I've recently helped some people make out of budgets. Uh, and and it's, it's amazing. 
when I help them make out the budget, the first thing we do, we, we take the income and then we take expenses. And the first thing is the tithing, see. So we put the tithing down. And, of course, tithing is the tenth part. It's the first fruits of your increase. And if you pay your tithes or transfer your tithes back to God, like the Scripture states, it leaves you with 90% with the blessings of the Lord upon it. Now, you know, the logic is if you spend all your money first and give to God last, then there ain't anything left to be blessed. Pardon my ain'ts here, but there's just not anything left to be blessed. So you pay your tithes first, or at least it's in your budget and appropriated, it's there, so that the remaining 90% can be blessed to the Lord. And anything that you can do beyond that is called giving. While God does bless you, for your continual giving or, or tithing, the real blessing is in the surplus that you, you, you manifest faith to, to give. Now, to give, you, to give you an example of this, you give, here's a man that gives 10%. He's just obeying the commandment of the Lord. And God has promised that he will bless him. So he's going to bless the man who gives his 10%. Now, it doesn't make any difference whether you give it and you don't want to give it or you don't feel that it works. You just do it because it's a commandment of God. God has put the certain percentage there, 10% of your increase. Is that gross or net? Somebody said it all depends on whether you want net blessings or gross blessings. See? So, so what, what you do... You give that 10%. That's tithing. You actually owe that. We call it giving, but, but you actually owe that. You actually pay that. That's God's. He has claimed that. And anything you give above that, you give with cheerfulness. And cheerfulness denotes your level of faith. Now, recently in helping someone put a budget together... We put the tithing down and we got to missions. One dollar a month. And you know what they did? They laughed. They said, a dollar? <laughs> I said, but you told me you couldn't afford to give. That's what you were telling me last week. But a dollar? Yeah, we're talking about $52. $52 a year now. A dollar a week. In other words, <clears throat> you're laughing at it, but that's better than nothing. See, because last year you gave zero. And if you got ten people in the church who give $52, that's $520. If you got a hundred, that's $5,200. See? Sunday school, 50 cents. Well, see, when I wrote all those things down, they laughed. But my, that's so little, why don't you worry about it? Well, you see, that type of thinking, though, plays a very important part 
in the structure of your attitude. You see, attitudes are built. They're structured. Just like anything else is built. And so what you do, you develop an attitude toward giving. Now that attitude will grow. See, I made the statement here, and uh, now I'm going to be talking real frank because about some of these things before we really get into another aspect of this message, but because I've had so many people to call me and talk to me about this, uh, and, and it is important. It is important. It's important to all of you. I made this statement about six years ago. Now, if you want a double blessing, pay your tithes twice. You remember making that statement? I don't know why I made that statement. But one time when I was praying, see, as a minister, it, when you rise above the local license level, you have to send one half of your tithing to the district. Brother Felix knows all about that because he is a general licensed man. And so, <clears throat> you on a local license, you only send $10 per month, and the rest of the tithing goes into the church. But <clears throat> what Sister Grand and I have tried to practice, since then the Lord began to talk to me, I started just paying tithes on what I wish I made rather than on what I make. So what we do, we would pay our tithes to the church, turn around and then pay half the tithes to the district, which makes one and a half times, and then turn around and give another half to the building fund, which makes us paying our tithes twice. And I can truthfully say this, that has not hurt us one bit. It has not. And the reason why that I I feel so strong about this because, you see, several years ago we were so deep in debt and I didn't know what in the world we were going to do. And the Lord really impressed me. You can give your way out of debt. I read the scriptures. We, we teach this in stewardship, and this is old hat to many of you, but some of you it, it's not, and some of you are having difficulties. You can give your way out of debt. You can do that. And you can do it by, by consistent giving. Now here's how a lot of people operate. Now, you know, we establish priorities. God's number one, the family of God's number two, and the work of God's number three. Those are the priorities of Christian. So a missionary will come by, and when you give to a missionary, you're giving to the work of God. True? Uh, there's an overlapping where you are given to the family of God, but basically it's to the work of God. It's easy for a person then to be moved emotionally and just pledge something that he cannot manifest faith uh, to give. So he pledges, I'll give a thousand dollars a month. Now let's just use that, okay, for an example. I'll give a thousand dollars a month. And then all of a sudden, he has left other areas undone, such as the family of God, and God himself, and so he's got himself in a situation that's hard to deal with. 
And what he's done, he started on the very bottom of the of the line of priorities, and he's working back up the other way. So, as a result, he gives a thousand dollars. Next month can't give anything. Next month nothing. Next month nothing. Now, see, I personally believe that you're better off. Every man's better off to establish a particular budget and stick with it and build up a surplus and then give what you have in the surplus rather than 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 trying to manifest faith every month for money. Now you follow what I'm saying here? Now, because most people most people live their life in such a spasmodic fashion that they cannot be blessed of the Lord. In other words, boy, they just really blessed the cause this month, but it's a year and a half before they can do anything else. I place so much importance on consistent giving. Consistent giving. Consistent giving. I mean, every week you give so much. 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 You know, I've come to the conclusion, too, in our own lives, and I don't know what tomorrow holds for Sister Grant and I. I don't know. Because I know that the the steps of a good man are directed by God. God can make me the poorest person in Madison by daybreak if he wants to. He can do that. He can make me the wealthiest person if he wants to. I have come to the conclusion that that God can't trust most people with much money because they become greedy and selfish. The more they get, the more they want. And the more they keep for themselves. Now naturally, the more you make, the more you're going to keep for yourself, but the more you're going to give too. See, most people cannot become millionaires because God can't trust them with that. You follow what I'm saying here. I want I want this to soak in. I don't know who I'm ministering to, but this is this is going to help you. But you see, I may become poor by daybreak, but I promised God a long time ago before I paid any bills, I would first pay my bill that I owe him. Now you'll find this out. If you ever borrow money from people, usually the people that you love the most are the ones that you become the most derelict in when it comes to your responsibilities. See, the motto goes like this. You're better off to give than to loan to a friend because usually it costs you the same. Follow what I'm saying? And wives and husbands both can say a big amen on this. Usually you take your frustrations out on the person who's been the best to you.
Now that those things ought not be. But you wives and you husbands could say amen to that. That's just the way it is. So, <clears throat> if, if everything you have on a daily basis or weekly basis comes from God, pray tell me why then would you not give back to God that which he gave to you to start with? Why would you ignore him and pay a light bill? You may say, but my lights will get cut off. They may stay cut off. If you ignore God that way. See. And you've got to remember that most of those bills that got you so deep in debt, God had nothing to do with them anyway. In fact, he was probably prompting you not to purchase those things that you purchased. For it is not God's wishes for anybody to overextend themselves. <clears throat> But isn't it true that the first responsibility, which is to God, is usually the first one you drop? That's, that's where your temptation is. And then your second responsibility, if you borrowed money from a friend, you'd rather pay a car note than your friend. Now why? Why would you do that? Well, my friend doesn't put pressure on me. That may be true, but shouldn't you honor the people who are the kindest to you rather than those who are the meanest to you? So usually, see, what I'm, I'm trying to say is you, you, you take the, your priority list and you work back down and you start honoring those who are the furthest out on the periphery and those closest to your heart are the ones who suffer the most. Now, <clears throat> the spirit of the church is to give and to share. Your first responsibilities are to God. No doubt about it. That's what I've been talking to you about here. And it would be good for you, and we'll get away from this budget thing. If you don't have a budget, get a budget, and every week you know exactly what you're going to give to, to, to whatever you give. You know exactly what you're going to give. Sister Grant and I worked in whole missions churches. And I remember times in which I preached to my wife and my two children, only two at that time. And maybe one other person. And that was it. And, and I think that unless I'm mistaken, unless Sister Grant can, can correct me on this, I don't ever remember passing a church what we did not fully cooperate with the international church, the church at large, 100%. Every now and then I'll see a church where they only have four or five people. And when you talk to the pastors about cooperation, they say, well, we just have a handful. But if your handful were mixed and mingled or integrated into our bunch... Each one of your people would give. Then why won't you give when you're just a little handful? 
So as a result, our Christmas for Christ offering came in $25-$30. Why? Because there's nobody but Brother and Sister Grant to give. But it's just as important that I give when I'm standing alone as it is for me to give when I'm in a group. In other words, basically what we're saying, there is never a circumstance or a situation that you're involved in ever in which God excuses you from responsibilities. Never. <clears throat> what we need is a real baptism not of just talking in tongues, but we need a baptism of the disposition and the attitude of God himself. Now, <clears throat> I've read to you, how many times have I read publicly Matthew 5? I still get a lot of opposition. You'd be surprised when I say a lot of opposition. I have people who come and say, but Brother Grant, what about... Take a look at this, Brother Grant. And, and, and they go through, but I don't really... It, it is a scripture, and I, I mean, I didn't write this. You know, this, this was already written before I was ever born. Verse 38 of Matthew 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It seems to be a summary of the Beatitudes or the attitudes that we are to be or become. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto ye, to you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law to take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asketh thee, and for him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now, I've got a lot of tools and things that people borrow, and I tell them this. I'll loan you this. I'll not turn you away, but I would like you to return it. Because somebody else may want to borrow it. <clears throat> I've got tools in my tool shed that I gave up to $90 worth for that I never used, but they're worn out. I know some other people. Same thing has happened. I have a vibrating sander. I just went and bought another one. The one vibrating sander I used only one time for myself. And it was worn out. Does that bother you, Brother Gant? No, it doesn't bother me. I, I'm serious when I say it. It doesn't bother me at all. Now, I like for people to return them. They don't, I don't always get things returned, but... But uh, at the time that I used it, I needed it, so I went and bought it. I went and bought it so I wouldn't have to borrow it. Because I don't borrow unless I just feel that it is a, a legitimate situation. See, I think that the, the Christian attitude is every man must feel that he can make it without the help of his brother. Now, I'm not saying that you should be so independent. You say, I don't need them. We need each other. But I'm talking about from the attitude of each man trying to take care of himself. We're going to get in some other areas outside of this, this area, as I stated. But you're going to see how it works in other areas too. 
Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. That ye may be. It doesn't say that you may prove that you are. But that you will actually be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now see, that's the nature of God. And notice that ye may be, not that you may prove that you are, but that ye may be. For if you don't do these things, you are not. Now you may say, well, Brother Grant, you're making a big deal out of, out of words. Well, I don't know. Let's turn to John 8, and we'll just, we'll, we'll take another uh, look at this. Now, stay back there in Matthew 5 also. John, the 8th chapter. <clears throat> Jesus talks to the Pharisees in verse 32. He said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, thou shalt be made free? Now Abraham, when he stepped forth from Ur of the land of the Chaldeans, he was never in bondage to any man. Was he? No. Never. And this is what they're claiming. That wasn't true for the Jewish nation spent 400 years in Egyptian captivity or bondage. They came out and, and, and they signed peace treaties with the Canaanites and the Canaanites overrode them, grew more rapidly, progressed and had strong armies and they were constantly trying to flee from the Philistines and the Amorites and those people. Later on, they wanted a king so they could be like everybody else. They had a civil war in which they divided ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes went into Assyrian captivity and 120 years later, the two southern tribes went into Babylonian captivity and both the tribes then were under the reign of three different kings and empires for 70 years. And when they went back to the promised land, they were then overridden first by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And when Jesus was saying this, they weren't free. But see, that was their acclaim. That's what they were stating. Now, let's, let's go on down and take a look at this. In verse 39, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the work of Abraham. In other words, you claim to be Abraham's children. If you were indeed Abraham's children, 
you would be just like Abraham. So when Jesus said that you may be, he didn't say that you may prove. No. In other words, you're God's child only when you display the attitude of God. Now, you may say, Brother Graham, but you're leaving very little room for... And I also know that there is a point in, in which there is little or no resemblance of God, and God doesn't claim you to be a child, His child. See? And what I get out of Matthew 5 is that Jesus is actually saying, if you want to be God's child, there must be a similarity between you and God. Now Jesus went on to tell the, the, the physical sons of Abraham that they, they were actually sons of Abraham. For if you were of Abraham your father, you would do the works of Abraham. He went on to say in verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers will ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, how were they murderers? The Pharisees were experts at stabbing each other in the back. They were experts in bigotry. They were bigots from the top of their head to the sole of their feet. They were so full of prejudices and such. You see, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, they were, they were the keepers of the law. But on the other hand, they were so legalistic that, that they couldn't show any compassion. Now, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar, and he is a father of it. Jesus said, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So basically, Jesus said that <clears throat> you're not Abraham's children because you don't do the works of Abraham. And then, of course, in Matthew 5, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now we can't be perfect to the point of being absolutely as good as we can get. You see, God is perfect to the point... That if God changed, he would have to change for the worse, not the better. Because when you're perfect as God, you can't get any better. But the context in which this is written is talking about be mature enough to be kind to people that are not so kind to you. Be mature enough. That you understand that everything you have God gave to you. And while you may use the greater portion of it. There is a portion of everything that you touch. 
that does not belong to you. That you're only a steward of it. Now, let's talk about Abraham. Abraham, <clears throat> when I look at Abraham, and, and Jesus talked to the Pharisees about being the children of Abraham, Abraham's life was full of excitement. It was full of sacrifice, but on the other hand, it was full of the blessings of the Lord. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is Abraham forsook all. He left all. He left everything behind. When he was called to go into the promised land, friend, he left it all behind. Now you would think he'd, he'd be leaving all of his inheritance and everything. Now his father went with him to a certain place, but Abraham dwelt there until his father died. And then he went into the promised land. Now Jesus Christ himself said that if any man's going to be my disciple, he must leave his family behind. Now leaving your family behind doesn't mean that you disregard your family to the point that you are, are uh, not kind to them, are not respectful. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. I understand all of that. But on the other hand, we have people right here. In fact, every person here has experienced this. You see, when I grew up, I felt that I was going to be saved because my mother was praying. But after a lot of calamities and situations came my way, I understood if John Grant's going to be saved, he's going to be saved when he prays, when he seeks God, when he gets a hold of the Master. And so there was a time when I had to break earthly ties with my mother, so to speak, and step out and say, okay, now... It's me and you, Lord. And I settled this matter with God. My dad's home from the hospital. And I really praise God for that. Came home Thursday. And I wanted to inform you of it, but failed to Thursday night. But he called me. You know, every time I call down there now, my dad cries. And, and I want to go back. And I want to be with him. And, and I'll, I know I'll have to make a trip to Texas. Real soon. I know that. But you see, what becomes paramount in every Christian's mind now is the will of God. The will of God. Most of you would not even be here today if your parents had their way. Some of you would still be in drugs. Some of you would still be in alcohol. Some of you would still be in, in a real mess. For your parents would rather see you wrapped up in all of your sin than to be in this. Now that's simply because they don't understand. It really is. It's simply because they don't understand. Now I'm really amazed at the, at the number of people that just recently have told. This past week three people have, have made pretty much the same statement to me said, oh yes, my husband, or oh yes, my stepfather, oh yes, this person or that person. And I get these statements all the time. They just thought we were just a bunch of kooks until they came in and met you, Brother Grant, and talked to some of the people. And now they're saying, you know, you people are just normal people. Well, sure we are. Just plain old, down-to-earth, normal people. Nothing strange about us. 
I mean, we're just, just normal people. But because there's separation, you see, the first principle of Abraham's life was separation. He had to separate himself from the ways of God, uh, from the ways of the devil. And, and, and sanctify himself to the principles of the Lord. You see, when Paul said, our weapons are not carnal, but they are spiritual to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. They're mighty. That's what I was trying to say. Why are our weapons so mighty? Because they're different. They're spiritual weapons. In other words, somebody comes against you with hatred, what do you do? Grit your teeth and hate them back? No. You just smile at them and love them. And somebody makes accusation against you and you quickly agree with your adversary as much as you can. What can he do? In other words, if I walked up to Brother Chuck Cox and, and, and here I am, I'm just a big bruiser and he's just a big bruiser too. But he's heard a lot of bad stories about me and he's afraid I might be able to knock his nose off of him. <laughs> and so I walk up to him and I start accusing him of those things that he said about me. And he looks at me and said, yes, but I'm sure sorry. I take it all back. What's he doing? He's disarming me. I mean, what in the world can I do to him that he hasn't already done to himself? Because to say I'm sorry crucifies the man from the inside out. But you can take your best fist, brother, and you can beat him all you want to on the head. And you can't change his heart. Because all he does is just get worse inside. So our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty. We got some powerful tools in love, in joy, in peace, in long suffering. Somebody comes to our banquet thing, oh my, you know we gotta go over there. I feel so sorry for all these people and they're in there and we're laughing and cutting up and having a big time and oh the joy is just running, it's just bouncing off the ceiling and trying to get through the windows and, and they're saturated with joy and everybody's just rolling and laughing and having a good time and they walk out and say, I'm not going to feel sorry for them anymore. <laughs> That's the way it works. That's exactly the way it works. Praise God. And did you know there's some powerful weapons in separation? Some powerful weapons. And, and, and if there's anybody that doesn't like you, it's simply because they don't understand you. And maybe just a better acquaintance with you would cure their position. Now, another thing about Abraham that I, I really like, <clears throat> Abraham was a man who really did help out when there was a need. Now, you want to know how much Abraham was blessed when Abraham heard that Sodom and Gomorrah was under attack by three evil kings. You know what he did? He went out to his herdsmen. And they were skilled men. The Bible tells us he, he had taught and trained them. 
Now, Abraham, I don't know how long he had been out of Ur, but Abraham had 318 men working for him just to keep all of his cows and everything. Now, if you don't think he wasn't blessed of God, I doubt very seriously that, that uh, where Brother Thorpe works at Rinks, that they have 318 employees. I don't know how many employees they have over at ABS, but I doubt it's over 318. Do you know? So you see, you know how God was blessing this man? He had an operation, didn't he? Well, you're talking about some cowboys. They're going to ride against Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Straight from the hills of Texas. No. <laughs> They're going to ride against Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and Lot was captured and Lot was taken out and, and all the possessions. And Abraham took his men and they went in there and they rescued those people and brought them back and brought all their goods back. And the people felt so indebted to them that they said, you know what we're going to do? He said, we're going to give you everything that you rescued. What do you mean? You know, all of these earthly possessions and everything. And you know what? Abraham says, no, I'm not going to take one thing from you for doing this. I did it to you and for you because I cared. And you don't owe me anything. They compelled him. He still wouldn't take it. He said, no, if I can't help people out who are in trouble, I don't even need to be in this land with you. And he said another thing. He said, if I took this and somebody heard about it, they'd say, oh, yeah, Abraham's wealthy because he took from those people down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't want to be that way. You talk about the spirit of giving. Then Abraham made a covenant with God. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm so in intrigued when I read this particular story. It does something to me. When God told Abraham that he was going to bless him, Abraham said, now how, Lord, will I know this? And the Lord told him, said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take the, the uh, turtle doves. I want you to divide them in half, and I want you to put them, on the, put them on the altar. And this is exactly what he did. And, of course, you know as Abraham went to sleep that night, the Bible says passing between those sacrifices were two things, a lamp and a smoking furnace. Now there's a real message in this, but the point that I want to show to you is that, that, that the covenant God made with Abraham was fulfilled simply because that Abraham manifested a desire to offer sacrifice. Now you know what desire he had? you know how strong his desire was? When he laid out those animals that were divided in half, the ravens, the fowls of the air came and they were going to come down and devour them and take them off the altar. But Abraham strapped them to the altar and pulled out his knife and stood there and he says, these things are going to stay on this altar because God said that his covenant would be fulfilled only by my sacrifices. And so he pulled out that knife and he held them off until it got dark, until it got time for them to go to roost. And then they left it alone. Now, later on he offered up Isaac. 
which was another symbol of his willingness to give to God. You see, Paul says in Romans the 12th chapter, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is what? Your reasonable service. I talked about this just briefly in our Thanksgiving night uh, uh, message to you. Probably no more than five, ten minutes. But, but listen to me. There, there's a real message in that. God's been talking to me about commitment and sacrifice. You see, here's a man that walks down life's road. He doesn't know God, so he is, is a child of the devil. What motivates him? The strong desires of his heart, which the Bible interprets as being lust. You see, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All sin comes through this category. He knows that the road he's traveling down leads to destruction. And yet, he knows by experience that none of his sinful vices bring fulfillment. The eye is not filled with seeing, neither is the ear filled with hearing. See, that's the principle of sin. It's designed to leave you cold and empty and undone. And he knows, though, that he's going to a devil's hell. But he'll keep on marching down that road because there's a little bit of hope that maybe something else will be satisfying. But it won't. And he has absolutely no hope. I talk to people every day who says, who tell me, I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope. <coughs> it's all dissipated long, long time ago. His family's broken and, and all kinds of problems and crises that come, but he just keeps on walking down that road. Now all of a sudden, God touches this man. When God touches him, he turns him around changes him, cleanses him. You remember how clean you felt when you went down in the waters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, there's nothing that will give you a complex like guilt. Guilt will make you do some strange things. It really will. It'll make you do some strange things. But you see, Paul says there is now, therefore, no condemnation. When condemnation leaves you, listen, you have the spirit of a fluttering bird from its nest. You can just sing and laugh and be yourself and be happy. Praise God. Isn't it great? And when you went down in the waters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you came up and you had that clean feeling, Oh, how great. How great. You know, every now and then a brother or sister will fall into something and you can see it on their countenance. You can see couples who are backsliding and falling away from God. You can see it on their countenance. They're not happy anymore. They seem to be in deep thought. They seem to be covering up. I, I've, I've been able to read some people that I've pastored, you know, I read them quite well. I've seen people come in and they lean over all the time and all you see is just their eyes above the back of the pew, you know. <laughs> lean forward all the time, that's all you can see. And they never look you in the face. So when I see somebody, just their eyes above the back of the pew. And when I look toward them and they look down. Now why are you doing that? Why are they doing that? 
it's almost like they think I can look right through them. I suppose you can in some cases. Follow what I'm saying? But you let them come down to the altar and pray a while. And then they get up in the next service. They got those shoulders square. Praise God. Oh, how I love Jesus. Big smile on their face, greeting everybody. Praise God, praise God. It's just great to know God. It's great to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And then see, when you walk down life's road then, there are many blessings that God gives to you right here on this planet Earth. You see, God promised if you give up houses and lands and such, He said, I'll reward you in this life and in the life to come. So when you fully separate yourself from every earthly tie that would keep you from doing the will of God, God has promised blessings up to a hundredfold. Now I can truthfully say I don't believe I've ever experienced a hundredfold blessings. Because I, I believe that when God made that, what he was really saying, that, that you can have blessings up to a hundredfold. According to your ability to trust in me and believe in me. I'm expecting hundredfold blessings. But I know Brother Grant's got some improving to do. I've got some more giving to do. I've got some more committing that I've got to render to God. But as I walk down life's road, here I have such great peace and such contentment and, and such great joy and such great fellowship. And not only that, I know when I reach the end of the road and I seal my lips in death and I close my eyes the last time that I shall be carried into the presence of God to be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. Now you know why Paul says, this is no more than your reasonable service. Sometimes we look and say, well, Jesus gave his life on the cross. Why shouldn't I give my life for him? That's true. But just considering what God has done for you as a Christian, it's no more than reasonable when you compare it to what the devil does for his children. Why shouldn't I want to serve God? Why shouldn't I want to pray at the altar? Why shouldn't I want to give on, on a weekly basis. Why shouldn't I want to take from my substance and help people? When I know that God's manifold blessings will rest upon me. It's no more than my reasonable service. But you see, what happens is when, when, when you begin to think about praying and committing yourself and giving yourself altogether to God, you know what happens? The devil comes and whispers in your ear. The greatest hindrance that I had in giving my life to God was this. The devil came and whispered in my ear and said, what will all of your friends say about you? What are you going to tell them when you tell them that you turned out to be a holy roller? Then when they ask you to go out, you say, I'm going to church. And they're going to say, church! <laughs> church, church, church. So I just sit back thinking about what all my friends are going to say. And I kept walking down that road that leads to destruction exactly where they were walking. 
And we played little games with each other. We talked about how much fun we had doing this, that, and the other. And, you know, most of the time, we, we exaggerated those stories. In the church, you know, when we exaggerate things, we say we're evangelistically speaking. You know, we said, man, we had a great service. 250 were out. Maybe 125, but evangelistically, 250. <clears throat> now, some of those can be evangelistic. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you know, we want to be, we want to be full of truth, don't we? But but you can give a little room for exaggeration because when you're up on cloud nine, things just seem to be a lot better than the man who's down reaching for the clouds. <clears throat> But we, we stretch things out of proportion. And what do we have to look for? Nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. So it's only reasonable that I give my heart to God. Only reasonable. Praise God. Praise God. You think about what God, what God has done for yourself. You know, I get to looking at what God has done for me. You see, the Bible tells me this. Listen, the way of the transgressor is the hard way. I remember when my wife and I first started out serving God several years ago. All of her family being of another denomination, and they didn't go to church. They all made fun of us. Always. It was hard for her. I mean, very difficult. See, I, I started living for God about a year, a year and a half before my wife. And my wife just held on to that old tradition. And, and, and her mother and various people come around and make fun of me. Because here I am living for God and she's not living for God. And I want to tell you one thing. My wife may appear to be sweet, and she is. But before she started living for God, she was stubborn. And you, you couldn't, to talk to her was like talking to that brick wall that's on the other side of that plaster there. She, she wouldn't say much. She'd just sit there and listen and then she'd go do what she wanted to do. And so that was just it. And, and I tried everything in the world, including getting mad at her, to try to get her to church. In fact, the night she received the Holy Ghost, she got so mad at her service, she ran in the back room, which was on this side, and, and knelt down and started crying. And a couple of sisters thought she was under conviction. They went in there and started praying with her. And they started laying hands on her and... And, and she was so disturbed and so upset about the service and about the Pentecostal church that all of a sudden she began to weep and cry and she broke down and received the Holy Ghost in the back room. But when she went in there, she was mad as a hornet, a wet hornet. There's nothing worse than a hornet except a wet hornet. <clears throat> but now the tables have turned. Her brothers and sisters come and say, uh, you know, I don't understand. You know, I've been watching you for a long time. Uh, you sure seem to have your act together. My, I mean, how the Lord has really blessed. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, you think I could borrow some money from you? 
No, I'm serious with you. Now, it doesn't bother me to say that, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I say that humbly. I, I don't say that proudly in any way. But uh, uh, you seem to have a special drive or something. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's just God. It's God blessing His people. But you see, the spirit of the Christian is that when, when people are nasty, you just, you're just not nasty. So when we used to go over and and uh, it's Thanksgiving time and, and we'd sit and eat and they'd always ask me to pray. They'd say, well, John, you think you can invoke a few blessings on this food that mom's prepared here? So I'd bow my head, God, I pray, Lord, for a great day and thank you, Lord Jesus, for this food and God, we just pray that you'd come and bless our fellowship and, and you know, they'd sit around real antsy She'd leave so we can open up the beer. You know. But we were always nice, always kind. And even when we stayed too long and they opened it up, see, they could only go so long without opening it up while we were there. I don't ever remember talking to one of them about, about any of their sin. See, a guilty conscience needs no accuser. And in view of the fact that they waited so long to open it up, led me to believe they thought it was wrong. So why should I tell them? So we've tried our best to be as kind and considerate to those people as we can. And you know, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, I say first in Romans 12. I started quoting that. Let's close with just that. Would you do that? Turn to Romans 12. And let's, let's close there. <clears throat> and you may stand with me if you would. <clears throat> I beseech you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, and we quoted that verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Rejoicing, uh, not slowful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continue an instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice them that do rejoice, rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. In other words, you don't have to fight your own battles. Cover up for yourself. If God didn't send somebody along to fight for you, let it go. You don't always have to be on the defense. But rather give place unto wrath. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, verse 20, it says, For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now that doesn't mean that God will bring judgment upon him or, or, or it doesn't mean what a lot of people say it means. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I was so kind to him and just burn him up. No, that's not what God's saying. See, the heaping coals of fire is taken from a historical and traditional story. Years and years ago when it was not profitable for every man to keep a fire in his home, they kept a fire in a central city out in what we would call the square area. Somebody kept the fire there all night. And then at daybreak, one specified individual from the home would go and he would take from the fire of the central fire and he would put it in a clay pot with ashes and he would bring that fire back to his own home and he would carry that on his head. And he would go in and warm the whole household. And what Paul is doing is that he's saying is that you who have the fire of God and you who keep it burning, you have the ability to warm some cold friend. He can take your fire and feel the warmth of it and eventually have a fire in his own home as a result of yours. Praise God. And the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. And giving gets a hold of the Christian. I want to do my part. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. I've instructed all of you for some time tonight. But I felt it was necessary. I haven't talked here for some time. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord. Oh, how I love you, God. <coughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. <coughs> I want to do that will, O oh Lord. <coughs> I want to do thy will, O oh Lord. I want to do thy will, O oh Lord. I want you to take me, break me, I want to do Thy will, O Lord. Now with the true spirit of Christmas, nobody intending to intimidate, nobody intending to put somebody down and make them feel inferior. As we sing this again, I'd like for you to find a prayer partner. We'd like for everybody in the building to pray. Just go to somebody and say, could I pray with you tonight?
and get right down someplace in the building here, maybe around the front or wherever, and pray with that individual. Share with that individual. Praise God. How many of you have special requests for prayer? How many of you know somebody that's sick and needs a healing? How many of you know somebody that's heartbroken? How many of you know somebody that's broke altogether, has no money for this Christmas? How many of you know somebody that's hungry? You see, all of us, how many know somebody that's unsaved? Praise God. Praise God. A lot of things to pray about. Let's sing it one more time as you find a prayer partner. I want to do thy will, O Lord. I want to do thy will.